Thanks for listening to The Gist. If you want to check out an ad-free version and bonus content, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. It is the best way to directly support our endeavors. It's Friday, May 12th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And in January of 1997, an Oklahoma man was bludgeoned to death while being robbed by a meth addict. The killer, who used a baseball bat, was named Justin Sneed. Oklahoma is seeking the death penalty. But not for Sneed, who was the only other person in the room with the victim. On death row is Richard Glossop, who police say told Sneed to bludgeon the victim. The confession was iffy, the investigation spotty, the evidence paltry. But still, Oklahoma pressed on. Until now, the Attorney General of Oklahoma has relented asking the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, for a stay of execution. The AG submitting that request. Oklahoma's Attorney General Gentner Drummond looking to stop the execution. Attorney General Gentner Drummond. And Gentner Drummond is a name in the news. Names 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 Names in the news. news. All right. Sticking with serial killer names in the news, Carlos Dominguez, he's not the newsworthy name, but he certainly is a dastardly sort. He stabbed three people in Davis, California. Two died. So Davis is the city and also the name of the UC campus that Dominguez attended until right before his spate of stabbings. But what interested me was the name of the county where these deadly acts occurred. If you missed it from ABC 10 News. And he's now an accused serial killer. Becca Hobbegger is learning more about the suspect who pled not guilty inside the YOLO Superior Courthouse today. YOLO. Three dead in YOLO. YOLO, if you don't know rap slang from about 12 years ago, means you only live once. Which, in the case of a superior courthouse and a county detention center housing a man who allegedly acted on impulse to take the lives of others, is a... Horrible name. Now, of course, the town fathers of YOLO couldn't have known that YOLO would become a pain to acting rashly, along with a reminder of the often morbid consequences of said acts. But if we're renaming Dublin libraries for the connections to enslavers, maybe YOLO should go. If not go, well, then at least it should really question itself as a name in the news. Names in the news. Names in the news. Names in the news. A January 6th rioter, this former Navy Reserve's petty officer first class, was convicted of obstructing the joint session of Congress. He was inside the Capitol making mayhem. This gentleman spent $50,000 panic buying his words. Many weapons after Joe Biden's inauguration. Born Daniel Abraham Speed. Mr. Speed legally changed his first name, and he is now Hatchet Speed. Hatchet Speed, member of the U.S. intelligence community, Hatchet Speed, insurrectionist. Hatchet Speed, sentenced to six years in prison. Godspeed, Hatchet Speed. You are today's last name in the news. On the show today, it's a big, doubly segmented show. We have an interview about a big, huge podcast. It is called Think Twice, Michael Jackson. It is hosted by Jay Smooth and my old friend, Leon Nafak. You know him from Slow Burn. He takes his talents to Audible and Wondery, where you will find his first examination of a pop culture as opposed to political 
icon, Leon Nafak, up next. Blaise Pascal once said that there is a God-shaped hole in all of us. The new audio documentary, let's call it a podcast, Think Twice, Michael Jackson, contemplates the same question about its subject matter. It is not just a history of the king of pop. It is an analysis of Michael Jackson's continued place in the culture. The podcast was made by Jay Smooth and Leon Nafak. It is a 10-parter from Audible and Wondery, and Leon's back on the gist to talk about this new effort. Hello, Leon. Hey, Mike. Good to be here. Your past work has been about history, I would say, more newsy subjects. You've done Benghazi and AIDS and Watergate. Michael Jackson is pop culture, but obviously it's something that everyone is familiar with. How does he fit in with your usual way of working and your oeuvre up to this point? (laughs) Well, I guess I'm attracted to these massive stories that everyone kind of ambiently absorbs over the course of their lives uh, and has a sense of, but doesn't necessarily know all the details and all the complications and all the subplots and all the forgotten texture. Um, There's only so much that kind of gets passed down uh, and absorbed, you know, in that passive way when you are a person in the world and you're learning about things as a, you know, as a just as as you just passively absorb information. Um, And I think I'm attracted to these big stories because invariably, when you are deliberate about which rocks you turn over, and when you are sort of industrious about finding people to talk to who haven't been interviewed a million times, and who saw little corners of the big story uh, from their vantage point, you invariably find something fresh and you come to understand what happened and why it happened the way it did in a more vivid way. In a lot of the audio documentaries, the podcast, it was pretty clear of a contrast between what you thought then or what you thought you, the listener, thought going in and what you might think coming out. I mean, your production company is Prologue, and this thing is called Think Twice. I would say with, say, the Bill Clinton documentary, not the whole thing, but much of it was about re- contextualizing and contemplating him as uh, a sexual abuser and other things. With some of them, it was more, Benghazi was such a hash. What the hell did it really mean? What was, with Michael Jackson, what did you assume to be the starting point for most Americans or most listeners? And were you right about that? Did What you thought, we thought about Michael Jackson, is that what we thought about Michael Jackson? Well, one thing I didn't quite appreciate was that he was on his back foot for a large chunk of his career. Like, Yeah, that's a good point. We start the show in 1993, which we describe, I think, as the exact middle of the story, which I don't think that's chron- like literally true in terms of how old he was, um, obviously. But um, it is true in the sense that up till that point, he was on this meteoric rise. And then, you know, the 90s happened and then the 2000s happened. And that whole time he was trying to stage sort of one comeback after another. I mean, even Dangerous, which I think a lot of people think back on as part of the glory run, 
was sort of a comeback effort. And like when he went into promoting that album, um, the, the marching orders from his label were to kind of remind people of how much they love him. Because even though at that point there had been no allegations of abuse against him, he had, you know, taken on this valence of a real eccentric that people didn't really know what to make of. I mean, his physical appearance had changed. Uh, his skin color had changed. There were all these stories about, you know, idiosyncratic <laughs> habits that he had, like sleeping in a hyperbaric chamber. And I think the marketing effort around Dangerous was all about reminding people of who, you know, of the Michael they fell in love with. And I was surprised to realize that 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 they went into that kind of, again, like on their back foot. And then when you kind of fast forward and look at the rest of the 90s, obviously after 1993, when the first allegations were made, he was dealing with a with a with a reputational problem um, and a, a threat to his legacy that he hadn't up to that point. But you look at the release of history where he erected, you know, monuments to himself all over the world. And then the album that came after that, Invincible, it's just like he was just he was making comeback after comeback after comeback or trying to. And I don't think I appreciated that um, having sort of just perceived him as just the most famous and successful celebrity who's ever lived. Right, right, right. On on his throne. But the thing about the meteoric rise is you could reliably chart the course of a meteor. It has a trajectory. And uh, Michael Jackson certainly didn't. It might, in retrospect, seem the king of pop reigned supreme throughout his life. But it was not true, as you ably document. But let's even go back to that king of pop moniker. I did not realize until listening to that documentary how hard fought with uh, brass knuckles it was to get that affixed to him yeah it was it was something he wanted and something that you know he demanded uh and something that mtv executives told their vjs to say about him uh as a branding effort that he wanted and that they executed for him and i think what that speaks to in terms of things that i didn't quite appreciate before we made this show is that he was very strategic and very tactical and even cunning, I think, about his public image. Um, I think a lot of people, including myself, prior to making this, saw Michael as this almost naive vessel for all these forces that were buffeting him around. And he was this pure kind of genius, right, who 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 was an artist and who, who, from whom, you know, music poured out in this magical way. And I think it it does really change your perception of him to realize that he was, as we know, like from his purchasing of the Beatles catalog, he was a very, very shrewd businessman. He was very, again, deliberate about how he sculpted his image. And I think what we found was that those efforts ultimately kind of spun out of his control. Like at certain point, you know, he at a certain point he was happy to be seen as a weirdo, and then suddenly that really took over, uh, and he couldn't he couldn't do anything about it. As to the King of Pop label, they didn't just ask or quote unquote insist that the VJs say it. There was hardball, right? They played hardball in the sense that uh, th- you know Michael's people came to came to uh, an MTV executive and said, "This is what Michael wants," and before the guy had even said, okay, uh, I think Michael walked in and his people were like, 
it's happening. <laughs> everyone, everyone, everyone's on board. And I think it was hardball in the sense that it was Michael and his team flexing his enormous celebrity and his enormous centrality to MTV um, to get what he wanted. Yeah, there are, I, to me, there were revelations and news broken during this documentary. And uh, I know that some of it was out there, but I had never realized um, some of the machinations to used to uh, advance his image, such as during uh, the Super Bowl announcement, he sort of um, remade, he sort of defined Super Bowl halftime shows. I kind of forgot that, but there was some crowd noise pumps in that made it seem like as we, to get back to what you were talking about, the King of Pop always reigned supreme and was always on his throne. No, that's not true. There was a lot of, there was a lot of uh, effort to make it seem that way. Yeah, so the the Super Bowl halftime show, I think, is 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 fairly, I think, described as the apex of his fame. Uh, he walks out on stage uh, and says nothing and doesn't move for like over a minute, and he's just standing there like a statue. And you watch it on on YouTube, and the entire stadium is just going nuts and losing their minds. Yes. Yes. And you're just like, wow, this guy at the height of his powers, like could just stand there. And that was all it took for people to just completely, uh, lose it. And the reality was, as we found out from talking to an NFL executive who was working on the halftime show at the time, and also, um, one of the engineers who produced the show, it was really awkward when he, stood there for over a minute and said nothing because the people in the arena couldn't really tell what was going on. Uh, they were looking at him and wondering if there was a technical malfunction, whether there was a cue that was being missed or something. And it, when you look at the actual stands in the videos, you can kind of see like people are kind of um, milling around. And it's, it's, it's it, it, it made sense once I heard it that this crowd noise that you hear, this insane applause was artificial. It was pumped in behind the scenes because they realized that how it would look otherwise. And they didn't know, I think, how long he was going to stand there. Um, I think if, I, if, my, if my recollection is right, they didn't really know he was going to do that. Um, and they didn't know. I mean, think about it. Imagine, imagine you're producing the show and the guy is standing there for 30 seconds, 40 seconds, 50 seconds. You're like, well, how long is this going to go on? And so I think that their, their fix was like, okay, let's, let's just make this feel really exciting. And and it worked. I mean, not only did he launch into his set and it was perfect and became the stuff of legend and as you said, like became a template for all Super Bowl halftime shows going forward. But like I saw on Twitter recently someone was uh someone like posted a, a, a you know open question like what's the what's the moment like what's the the biggest I'm him moment that you can think of? And that's referring to like a moment when someone was basically presenting themselves as like the most dominant, the most uh, you know, powerful version of themselves. I'm him. You know, I'm I'm really him. And a couple people posted that video yeah, and said, the, the "This is it." Flex. Like yeah. Michael yeah. Jackson standing like a statue and receiving this rapturous reaction. And so it was really bracing and kind of as for me as like someone who makes a living looking back at the past. It's like, wow, we really don't know what happened. Even this moment that seems to have been witnessed by millions of people turns out to have this 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 truth behind it that you could not have known
Yeah. Now, to be fair, some of the people in the stadium might have been stunned. I would say <clears throat> not not a half, but a third because they were Buffalo Bills fans <laughs> with their team down 28 to 10 on their way to losing three out of four straight Super Bowls. So that could have factored <laughs> in. And I don't know if this was in the documentary. I just looked this up. Do you know who did the coin toss for that Super Bowl? No. It all comes, it all comes back. It's O.J. Simpson. Oh, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. So speaking of... Uh, Damn, I wish we had known that. I wish we had put that in. OJ comes up a couple times as a, as a counterpoint uh, in this documentary. There's another great... And tell me if this is um, either footage or facts that you unearthed. There is this short film that Michael Jackson at different times in his career tr- uh, commissioned and actually ultimately executed. And it was called different names over his career. Uh, once it was called Is This Scary? And then it became Ghosts. And it's essentially a horror film where villagers are upset at the weird guy uh, up on the house in the hill, and he's the weird guy up on the house in the hill. There were also interviews with people who played the villagers, and why was this important to understanding Michael and where he was at the time? Yeah, well, so the video you're talking about uh, initially was commissioned uh, as a pro- promo for the Adams Family Values movie, uh, the sequel to the Adams Family. Uh, you remember, like, uh, Will Smith did the Men in Black uh, theme song, and there was that very popular video that he made. I think that this was kind of supposed to be in that vein. Um, and so he was going to film it like in an Adams Family style castle, if not the actual thing itself. And there were going to be cameos from, you know, Christina Ricci or whoever and um, as Wednesday. And um, he, he, but he wanted to make a, 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 almost like a spiritual sequel to Thriller um, in that it was sort of this mini horror movie set to music. And he reached out to Stephen King to collaborate with him on the screenplay and we talked to Stephen King and he told us all about how Michael called him and you know made the pitch Uh, there's one amazing moment in that interviewer so I guess Stephen King was filming the stand at the time and he was out of town he lives in Maine I believe with 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 uh, his wife and I believe Castle Rock yes and and so she got the call from Michael and she gave him Stephen King's phone number. I don't know if it was a cell phone at the time or like his trailer number or whatever. And Michael <laughs> tried to write it down with his finger on the carpet that was that he was he was sitting on the carpet, I guess, or maybe he was he was in a room with carpeting and he tried to like with his finger write down the number and of course it didn't work because he didn't have a pen on him. It was the problem. And and so then he get to call back and say, "I'm so sorry, like I didn't I didn't actually catch the number, and, and then, then he got it. So anyway, so he, he calls Stephen King, and he gives him this vision for a movie that he wants to make a short film in which basically the plot is, as you described, this weirdo on a hill is being persecuted by these this mob of villagers who are marching up to his castle with, you know, pitchforks. And the accusation is that Michael slash uh, this strange man uh, has been spending time with their kids, doing magic tricks with them, showing them uh, tricks, scaring them, uh, and they don't like it. The parents don't like it. Meanwhile, the kids who are sort of being dragged along on this on this revenge mission by these, by these villagers, the kids are saying, no, 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 we like him. We really like hanging out with him, and, and it's really fun. He's not scary. And so the confrontation you see in the video is Michael basically saying, I'm not this scary weirdo, and you guys think that being weird is wrong. 
Um, but just ask the kids. The kids love me. And what I was struck by was that he made this film, that he was, he was moved to make this before anyone had accused him of doing anything inappropriate with kids. You know, he had been, he had been obviously seen with kids a lot in public, but no one really questioned it. Um, it wasn't really part of the discourse around him um, in any particularly negative way. Um, I think he was seen as like another eccentricity, right? So maybe it was inspired by that, but it, it just struck me like that he wanted to tell this story that seems very plainly autobiographical before he had anything to respond to almost. And so, as you said, Is This Scary was the first version of it. It actually got shut down. The production got shut down midway through because the first round of allegations against him came out. And those were, of course, the the Jordan Chandler allegations of 1993. And ultimately, Michael came back to it a couple years later and remade it as Ghosts, which which did ultimately come out, though I think it only really came out in Europe because I don't know I don't know why. But it's probably not particularly... at the time his um his appeal in America was at its nadir. That's right. That's yes. right. And so yeah, so so Ghosts is like kind you know, kind of well known, I think especially among fans. Oh, you know who really uh loves ghosts? People who work in special effects. You mentioned you mentioned ghosts to anyone who works in special effects. They're like, yeah, that was amazing. That was a huge leap forward for our business. Huh. Uh, we don't think we got this in the show, but I was I was amused by that. But the uh, the important thing or the important difference about ghosts, other than how it uh, redefined the special effects industry, was the angry villagers were played by Michael in that, which could be for a few reasons. The right? main one, yeah, the main yeah. one, the the sort of le- ringleader. And as you point out in the documentary, the actors who you have a couple of them, and there are some ones who uh, we recognize as a, that guy from TV, mm-hmm. they were encouraged to improvise. And so it's this weird thing where improvise shouting insults about what a freak he seems to be to Michael Jackson. Well, you do, you can go there, right? You can get quote unquote real, but you can also get too real based on that. So it's a little uncomfortable for them. Cut to ghosts uh, a few years later after a lot of allegations have come up. He's arguing with himself. So what do you think that symbolizes? He's trying to protect himself from what others might say, craft his own narrative, which is something he does all the time. Yeah. So he, so in, in the, in the version of the short film that actually got finished, uh, which is for for large parts of it are just a shot for shot remake of what would, what would have been the Adams family values, uh, promo that was abandoned. Um, the ringleader of the mob is this he's this mayor of i think it's they call it normal valley and so michael plays the mayor uh in full you know fat suit and prosthetics and yeah there are these moments during the confrontation between i think they call him the maestro in the credits like that's the name that michael gave the the guy on the hill the maestro is facing off against the mayor and both of them are michael and so to me, what does it symbolize? I mean, you can't look in anyone's mind, right? But like, to me, the mere fact that he even wanted to make this film suggests some discomfort with himself. Not to say like he had a guilty conscience. Like, I don't know that. But certainly, if I'm imagining myself, like writing a piece of fiction in which I am, you know, cast in the role of my arch enemy and I'm writing lines for myself to say to me in which I'm accused of being a freak and a, and a danger to kids. 
I don't know where that would come from other than a, a feeling that maybe I deserve it, <laughs> you know? And we'll be back in a moment to talk about Michael Jackson's legacy and how much we should all enjoy Michael Jackson's music. We're back with Leon Nafak, host of the Think Twice Michael Jackson podcast. The podcast does feature Leon and Jay Smooth talking to each other. Jay Smooth, a black man who loved Michael Jackson. Leon, a white man who knew of Michael Jackson. So I saw the Broadway show, and the Broadway show comes up in the podcast. MJ is the name of the show. And Jay in the podcast says he wishes he could have had a conversation with people leaving the theater. I did, too. I wanted that, too, because I'm not the kind of person who finds it terribly difficult to separate artist from art. I just have a general ethos of not punishing myself. If I enjoy it, I enjoy it. There's the person who made the art. If I'm not putting money in his pockets or her pockets, usually his pockets if they're a bad guy, or adding money to their estate and to further their bad works, again, don't punish myself and tell myself not to enjoy what I would otherwise enjoy. But with this MJ show... I didn't intellectualize it beforehand. I just went by my gut. And I got to say, I did feel pretty uncomfortable. I was very worried that MJ the musical would whitewash Michael Jackson the person. And indeed it did, but it also celebrated important elements of his performance and made those performances live again. And that was wonderful. So Leon didn't say what he thought of the Broadway show. So I asked him, Leon, what you think about it? Well, the Broadway show is really interesting in that they set the story in the run-up to the first allegations, and the story ends before those allegations come out. And so they don't really need to engage with them within the parameters of the plot they have set up as their as their storyline. Uh, however, there there is this one moment, I wonder if you caught this when you saw it, Mike, the big tension, as I recall, in, in, in the Broadway show is that Michael's having this, is developing an addiction to pills, right? And that sort of stands in for all of his other issues that he might have been dealing with. And at one point, there's like a press conference and and someone someone yells out, Michael, Michael, what about the allegations? And I'm sitting there like, I know what moment this is supposed to be depicting. There were no allegations yet. So they're sort of trying to, you know, use that word, I think, to flip that switch in your head like okay like we we know about we know that there were allegations but in fact i think on paper like that's a reference to his drug use um within the within the universe of the of the broadway show and within the context of the show because uh, i assume most listeners haven't seen it the media as i don't know man it's really that popular scene, <laughs> that's true uh, the media is portrayed in that scene are jackals they're obviously in the wrong our hero is being beset unfairly and so this question about the allegations or just allegations uh, as a whole are, you know, portrayed as unfair and another one of the obstacles to our hero, or at least unkind, yeah. right? Yeah, and of an of a, of an ilk with uh, of a piece with a bunch of uh, inaccurate allegations, yep. and the media is portrayed as really just tearing apart uh, the art, an artist, an artist we love so much that we paid hundreds of dollars to see in a, to see a simulacrum of in a Broadway show. Simulacrum? Simulacrum? Anyway. I think, I think I say simulacrum. 
a simulacrum in, in a Broadway show. Maybe I should just say words that I know how to pronounce, right? That's one way to do it. <laughs> An um, approximation mean... of, a Xerox copy of in a Broadway show. <laughs> I didn't mean to sidestep your question um, about what I think. Uh, I guess what you were asking, like, what, can I separate the art from the artist or should do, you do I think feelings? we should? A raft of questions like, did you have those feelings coming in? Did you think it was a whitewash? Do you worry about celebrating uh, Michael Jackson in that way? I know in the show, in your podcast, you talk about what you thought would happen with the culture turning against Michael Jackson. The Broadway musical certainly indicates everything we've been seeing up to that point, which is that our culture is more or less embracing Michael Jackson uh, upon exiting from the show or having processed it. What do you think? I am not someone who would ever scold someone for enjoying Michael Jackson's music or enjoying the musical. I don't even, I don't, I don't have a desire to scold the people who wrote the musical and produced the musical for, you know, not engaging with that aspect of Michael's life and career. Uh, I get it. I get why they did that. And I get that the purpose of this show is to celebrate him and to give people a, f a fun and nostalgic look at this story that really means a lot to people. Like, I, I got the impression just looking around that the audience was full of not necessarily like super fans, but people who for whom Michael Jackson is like part of their mental furniture, right? He's someone whose songs they grew up with. So I don't begrudge them. And I guess it is, and it's not like, it's not like the musical is supposed to be journalism, right? I, I, I would say that a journalistic uh, exploration of Michael's career can't do what they did in the musical. I think if you're gonna try to tell the story of his life or even like the story of the Michael Jackson phenomenon, which is, I, I sort of think of our podcast as being not like a biopic about him, but like, a cultural history or a social history of Michael Jackson and like a, 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 a cultural history or a social history of like the Michael Jackson phenomenon, like how everyone, you know, I used to talk about when we were doing slow burn, like how did people experience Watergate in real time? Like how did, how did public opinion form? Um, what was it like to experience the story before you knew how it was going to end? Like, I mean, we're kind of just doing that again for this extremely singular life that, all of us witnessed and that people have memories of and you know you you talk to people who are like yeah i remember when his skin changed and we were just really interested in how people processed the plot of his life uh, as consumers of culture um and so i think if you're doing that then you have to engage with the allegations and you have to talk about why we quote unquote as a culture like moved on from round one and then round two and then round three you know that's the other thing i didn't quite appreciate before we started making this is that there were just these discrete moments in his in his life when these allegations like when there were there were multiple rounds and of allegations that were made and they were all separate from each other in a way um to me in, in my mind like they kind of blurred together like i didn't quite make a distinction between like the 1993 events and then the 2005 events I, it was just kind of a, a blur and so to realize that he was um so resilient in terms of coming back from each of those and 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 posthumously did so you know when when leaving neverland came out like you alluded to this i thought leaving neverland was going to be the nail in the coffin like i looking looking around the media coverage of it and this talking was the to the hbo my, documentary that uh highlighted the uh testimony of two of his victims and um really ch i think changed a lot of people's minds and did change the narrative but yes go ahead yeah i mean i, I guess i just thought it would 
I thought it would change the narrative for more people. And I think I was in a little bit of a bubble um, of, 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 you know, maybe people in the media or maybe people who live in New York. I don't know. I mean, I think I don't know how many people saw Leaving Neverland. But, you know, I remember after it came out, there were all these news items about his songs being pulled off of playlists, at radio stations and all this. People started talking about, well, can we play Michael Jackson at our wedding? Um, and then you look around and you realize that, like, he's bigger than ever. If any, you know, like, I, he, he he's... The Broadway show is is a huge hit. Um, I think uh, They Don't Care About Us just hit a billion streams the other day. Uh, it, it's it's I don't want to say it's like it never happened, but... Um, I was surprised kind of to realize like just how little of a dent it had made in the sort of public imagination. I think the mistake there is to equate the embrace of his music with belief or disbelief in the allegations. I had on the documentarian who made the Neverland documentary, I absolutely like you. I credit and believe the testimony. And I have no qualms about playing dancing to, enjoying Michael Jackson. I think maybe a lot of people are like me. You're probably right. More people don't even know the depth of the allegations. I just don't think that the phenomenon of making a moral judgment about an artist and having that moral judgment dictate one's own enjoyment in a life that might be hard or annoying or just in need of joy and levity. I don't think that that's the normal course of things. I think maybe maybe it has something to do with uh, the New York media bubble and people writing about this feel the extra need to, you know, kind of parse it out in public. But especially with something that's not a discrete piece of art, like Woody Allen, is, his movies are movies and you watch them for two hours, but how many millions of people worldwide have seen Woody Allen movies. Some, you know, a few million. Um, Annie Hall was well seen, but there's a lot of movies and whatever he makes now probably wouldn't be well seen. Whereas everyone has heard dozens to hundreds of Michael Jackson songs, enjoys them, and doesn't want to stop enjoying them, even if the guy who made them, maybe years after making them, did horrible things. That's my analysis. Yeah. And I think there are people for whom it's hard to put those allegations out of their minds when they hear Michael Jackson's song. Like, I think Jay, my co-host, has more trouble, like, pretending like he doesn't know about all that when he hears a Michael Jackson song in, in, an, in an Uber or whatever. And I think that it's probably because he has a deeper relationship with Michael and grew up with him, uh, whereas I always knew him as this quite illegible and kind of confusing figure like I, I i say in the podcast like i didn't i came from russia my parents didn't really engage in american pop culture until later my mom didn't know the difference between michael jackson and michael jordan despite the fact that we lived in chicago and the bulls were uh the biggest thing in the world um i think maybe that makes it easier for me um because i came to him in you know around 1993 honestly and, and only ever knew him as this controversial and strange figure. Um, maybe that maybe that makes it easier for me to sort of compartmentalize. Um, but I also just believe, like you, I think that a piece of art can exist in a vacuum and you can appreciate it on its own terms. The other thing I'd say, though, is to me, it's like you sure you can sort of theoretically separate the, uh, the art from the artist, but in practice, like you bring what you know to your experience of a work of art and you can't really help it. And our hope, I think, in making this show is that by knowing a lot more than you might just ambiently pick up, 
it actually enriches your experience of the art. And you can listen to Billie Jean and think about everything you know about Michael now. And hopefully that actually, like, to me, it's actually easier to listen to Michael Jackson music now uh, and not think about the allegations quite so frontally than it was before we made the show. Um, like, I, 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 feel, I, feel, I feel like I know enough that I, it's almost like I've earned, I've earned, I've earned the right, you know. And I, I, I almost, I wonder if people have that experience who have, you know, not been listening to Michael's music since whenever. I kind of wonder if there are going to be people who maybe listen to the show and suddenly they can again. Like that would be that would be an interesting outcome to me. Leon Nafak is, along with Jay Smooth, the reporter and host of the new ten-part podcast from Audible and Wondery. Think twice. Michael Jackson. Leon, thanks so much. Thanks, Mike. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the producer of The Gist. He also provides voice work by telling us about names in the news. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. And Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions and in charge of Antiques Procurement. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Jeeperu, Dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>